0: If you have your Bibles, please open them to Exodus chapter 15. We are continuing through our series in Exodus, and this morning we're going to be looking at the last five verses of chapter 15. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that Joel preached from the first half of this chapter. It was a wonderful sermon, and it's a wonderful chapter where God's people are celebrating what God has done, right? Rescuing them from the Egyptians, how God miraculously parted the Red Sea. He allowed Israel to walk through on dry ground. And then as the enemies followed them into it, he swallowed them up with the Red Sea. An incredible story of God's salvation. In the first part of chapter 15, God's people are rejoicing in this salvation. They are singing, they are dancing. There is great joy as they express their gratitude to the Lord And and remember, as an application to this message, we we kind of changed things up a little bit last week, and we, we took an extended time after the sermon just to worship God as a church and express our gratitude to him as Israel did. This week, however, as we finish chapter 15, we see Israel is going to respond to changing events in a way that is not quite as admirable. After this moment of celebration and worship, They encounter some difficulties in life, and immediately they turn from gratitude to God to complaining against God. And now before anyone gets excited this morning, we're not going to be adjusting our time this morning as we did last week to to spend an extended time of grumbling against God. Um, We talked about it as a team, but it just didn't seem quite as appropriate this week, so it's just a normal Sunday for us this morning, but even though we don't wanna follow Israel's example in this way, these verses do have much to teach us and much for us to be encouraged by. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul speaks of the grumbling of God's people that's spoken about in passages like ours this morning. And he says, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. And so that's how it is with all of God's word, right? Even though it contains stories of people and places that are, that are far removed from our day, uh, every word of scripture has been written down for us, for our benefit, for our joy, to strengthen our walk with Christ. And that's surely true of our passage here this morning as well. So read this text with me and we'll jump into it together. Exodus 15, beginning in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. There they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. And then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the river. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. If there's one thing that is true about people, it's that we love to grumble. I was on Instagram the other day, and I I saw this post about what it's like raising kids, and I, I don't remember the exact quote but I'll paraphrase but it it said something along the lines of the other day we we took our kids to Disneyland and we spent hundreds of dollars on rides and on their favorite foods and we spent every waking moment making sure that this was an adventure of a lifetime but then later that night ask your kids to go to bed at a reasonable hour and they will complain and protest saying this is the worst day ever (laughs) and if you have kids you can probably relate to that right? Well, it's not just kids, it's adults too. Yesterday I was on a website called Next Door, Some of you may be familiar with this. And someone wrote a post complaining about the noise that their neighbors made when they used their, their key fobs to lock their cars at night. Um, I guess the, the, the beeping sound that it makes was disturbing to this person. And so they suggested in, in not so gracious of a way that, that if it's past 8 p.m. at night and you're locking your car door, you should first pop the hood of your car and disconnect your battery so when you lock your car it makes no beeping noise, which I thought was an interesting suggestion. Um, but you know, online, instant, Instagram, social media is filled with complaints like this. You don't need to spend too much time online to come to the conclusion that we love to grumble. It seems to come out of us quite easily, right? We don't just need to be online. Just join your coworkers at lunch and hear them talk about their spouses. Or go to the DMV on any given day. <laughs> or listen to yourself as you drive to work in traffic on a Monday morning. It'll become quite obvious that we love to grumble. And Israel, in this story, loves to grumble. We are quick to grumble. And God has much in his word to say about that grumbling. And because God is such a gracious God, he has much to say about how he wants to lovingly meet us in the midst of our grumbling. So the main idea of our, of our message this morning is remembering the grace of God helps us to resist the sin of grumbling. Remembering the grace of God helps us to resist the sin of grumbling. Grumbling. We have two points this morning. First, resisting the sin of grumbling. And second, remembering the grace of God. So first, resisting the sin of grumbling. Our text opens in verse 22. It says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. So here's Israel setting out from the Red Sea. They've they've just experienced this wonderful act of salvation and victory, and they are together worshiping God in their great joy. It's It's a great moment in their lives, right? For all of their lives, all they have known is captivity. And they have just experienced one of the greatest moments of deliverance in all of human history, and they are filled with wonder at what God can do. For many of the Israelites, this might have been the, the greatest moment in their lives to this date. As often is the case in the, in the midst of, of wonderful seasons in our lives, difficulties start threading their way in, right? And then God leads us to places that bring trials and bring burdens. Life is often mixed with, with great joys and deep sorrows, Right? As we continue in our story, we see that God has purposes in all of these things. But for now, Israel finds themselves being led away from the Red Sea and into the wilderness. And we'll see that in this wilderness, it brings struggles. Throughout the Bible, we, we see the wilderness usually always represents a place of struggle and testing. And so it is for Israel. They find themselves journeying through the wilderness for three days without water. They're not quite sure where they are. They don't know where they're going. They don't know. All they know is that they are running out of water which they legitimately need to survive and they're growing thirsty. And so you can, you can imagine that this is a very anxious moment for Israel. And just as they are growing the most in their anxiety, they they suddenly come upon a water source. It says in verse 23, it says they came to a place called Mara, and there they found water. And the text doesn't go into all the detail here, but you can imagine that this would have been a great moment of relief and excitement for Israel. They would have run up to the water with their jars, whatever, whatever containers they could collect water in, expecting to find instant refreshment. It's like if you, if you come inside after, after a hot day, right, you've been, it's a hot summer day, you've been working out in the yard all day, you're hot, you're sweaty, you're parched with thirst, and, and, and you, you come in there, there's nothing greater in that moment than just a cool glass of water, right? But imagine that this is one of those days, you come in from the hot sun, and you find your refrigerator's been broken all night and all day, and, and all there is to drink in it is just a, a lukewarm gallon of spoiled milk, right, like, And no matter how thirsty you are, nothing is going to convince you to drink that milk, right? Imagine how disappointing that moment would be. Well, this is what the Israelites are experiencing, right? When they came to Mara, they could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. The word bitter in the Hebrew is a strong word. It means it was completely undrinkable. Perhaps even harmful or, or perhaps even poisonous for some reason, right? And so you can imagine the disappointment that Israel would have felt in this moment. It says in the next verse that, And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Now, church, there's not a single one of us here in this room that should feel the right to stand in judgment over Israel for their grumbling in this moment, right? Every one of us would have grumbled in the same way, right? Right? Most of us probably wouldn't have lasted the full three days, right? It's it's probably amazing that that Israel made it three days without grumbling before now, right? For one thing, they don't know where they are. They're in the wilderness. They don't know where they're going. They don't know why they're there. It's unclear where God is taking them. And it's often in in those type of circumstances that produce the most grumbling and complaining in our lives, right? When there are circumstances in our lives that are difficult, the, the difficulty is made greater when we don't understand why that is happening, when we don't understand the purpose of what that trial is, when, when we don't understand how long that trial is going to last for. It's like if you're a kid and your parents are taking you on a vacation, but it's, a, it's an all-day drive to get there. Right? You, you might actually be going somewhere great, But from your perspective, you're hungry, and the AC isn't working, and it feels like it's taking forever to get there, and and hours feel like days, and just everything is just complaining. It's just all a trial, right? That that is a prime breeding ground for grumbling, right? And and of course, as we mature in life, we don't grow, we don't mature out of the temptation to grumble, right? We just just grumble about other things. That's what Israel is doing. So, in one sense, we can understand their grumbling, right? They're in the wilderness. They are desperate for water, which they very much do need. And the only water source is bitter and undrinkable. We would probably be grumbling too, right? But, church, remember what happened in the very last chapter. The last time that God brought Israel to a body of water, it was the Red Sea, right? And it was in that situation as well that they looked trapped, they looked desperate, all hope seemed to be lost, but God saved them, right? He parted the Red Sea. He triumphed gloriously over their enemies and provided for them. And now, in this next chapter, God has again brought them before another body of water. And again, their situation looks desperate, and they so quickly forget that God can save them, that he is wise, that he has purposes for their difficulties, that he has plans to deliver them, right? And they forget this, and so they grumble against God. Now, you might say, wait a minute, they aren't grumbling against God. They're grumbling against Moses, right? Verse 24 says, they grumbled against Moses, not the Lord. But in chapter 16, Moses so wisely tells Israel that that their complaining is ultimately a complaint against God himself. Exodus 16.8 says, the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumbled against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. See, here's the thing about grumbling. When we grumble, we are making a complaint against God. We are saying, God, you cannot be trusted. And maybe that sounds overly dramatic to you, I don't know, but, but that is how God speaks of our grumbling. He sees our grumbling as a grumbling against him personally. I think oftentimes we, we like to minimize the significance of our grumbling and what it says about our own hearts, particularly when we are the ones doing the grumbling, right? Right? Grumbling is the type of thing that it's really annoying and unpalatable when somebody else is doing it in your presence. But when we do it, we find all types of reason to justify it, right? We we often write it off as we're just having a bad day, or we haven't had our morning cup of coffee yet, or look at the circumstances. How could we not grumble given what is happening in our lives? But God's word does not view grumbling as a matter to just be brushed off as no big deal. Ultimately, grumbling is spoken of as a very serious sin against God and often has very serious consequences in our lives. And so let's consider from our story this morning in Exodus 15 about this grumbling. I want to make three observations about what grumbling is And why it is so displeasing to the Lord. Observation number one grumbling displays a distrust of God. We've spoken about this one already a little bit here, but but when Israel grumbled against God over the bitter water, they were not just expressing displeasure over their circumstances, they were also saying, God, you don't know what you're doing, you cannot be trusted. In spite of all that God had done for them, all the ways that he had proven himself to be faithful, they were quick to look at their circumstances and say, I don't like this, and there surely is no good in this, and God, you should not be allowing this to happen. That's what grumbling says about God. And this is true not just for the the big things in life that we grumble about, but it's true for the little everyday things in life that we grumble about. I remember a a few months ago, I was working at the church office and I was was preparing for a church meeting later that evening. And it was just one of those days where just nothing seemed to be going right. I I hadn't gotten good sleep the night before, I was having having trouble getting everything done on time, all these distractions were coming up they were getting in the way of what i wanted to accomplish and it was just it was just overall just a frustrating day for me and near the end of the day i was i was trying to use this paper clip to clip a bunch of articles together for a meeting later that night and, and the paper clip broke off in my hand and it was a, it was a small thing but it was one of those kind of last straw type small things. And I, I remember I took the paperclip and just in this moment of frustration, I just kind of, I tossed into a trash can. I just said, nothing is going right today. And I, ironically, I was, I was clipping articles together that were about guarding our heart and our words before the Lord. And, <laughs> and I think I was convicted by the irony of that. And uh, I remember just, just pausing for a second recognizing my grumbling and confessing my grumbling to the Lord. That I would say of this day that he had given me that nothing was going right. That that surely none of the distractions happening had any good purposes from God in them. That, That I would disregard the reality that God has saved me. That he has graciously allowed me to be a pastor. To get to serve a church that I love. That I was about to head off to a meeting with friends to talk about faith. It, It was a ridiculous thing to say that nothing is going right today. But it was not just ridiculous. More than that, it was an unjust accusation toward a God who daily proves to be good and to be for me. Sin is grumbling, grumbling is sin. It's a sin against God. And by God's grace, I was was able to confess that sin. I was able to move more quickly towards joy in that moment. But there are many times, church, that I am not so quick to confess the sin of grumbling. That I allow it to linger, and to grow, and to spread. And oftentimes I, I think we can find ourselves settling into a habit of grumbling in our life where, where it seems like it just, it just comes out right as naturally as breathing at times. Maybe for, for younger people here in the church uh, this morning, you, maybe you've developed a habit against grumbling against your parents. You know, like the rules they set up in the house, you complain about how they're not fair and so you grumble. Maybe you're older and you have the habit of grumbling about your job, right? Every morning it's unhappiness as you drive to work. During lunch it's complaining with your coworkers about your boss, and every night it's coming home and complaining to your spouse about it. Or perhaps like Israel in the story, we, we grumble about things that we have so long asked for and that God has given us, but we don't exactly like how they turned out, right? We, we, we wait years to get married and then much of it turns out to be difficult. It seems like there's just so much to complain about. We wait years to have children and once we do, we realize it's difficult. It's not exactly what we hoped it would be. We wait years to find a healthy local church. And then we realize that even good churches are messy and we find many reasons to complain about the people in them. Right? And often it's thankfulness and gratitude that seems so impossible, right? Whereas grumbling seems to come out so naturally in our lives. And ultimately that grumbling is a disregard for God's provision. It's an unhappiness with who or what God has put in your life. It's an accusation that he is not good. That he should not be allowing these things to happen. Whether he does not give you what you need in this life. And that grumbling steals away our joy. Which is our second observation about grumbling. It's like grumbling diminishes our joy in God. It diminishes our joy and diminishes the joy of others. Again, it's, it's interesting to know that in our story this morning, just a few verses back, again, Israel is rejoicing in the Lord. They are filled with confidence in God. They are glad to be his people. They are singing and dancing. There are people running around with tambourines. It's just, it's just all kinds of joy, right? And then two verses later, they're grumbling. And of course, they're grumbling because their circumstances have changed, right? The, the memory of God's provision has faded, and now they are thirsty, and they are convinced that God has just left them out in the desert to die. And all their joy is gone. And sadly, I think that might even make sense to us, right? right? They're thirsty. They don't have water. It's not clear what God's plan is. And so they grumble. And you might think, of course. What else would you expect them to do than to complain and to grumble to the Lord? But church, here is something that is really important for us. This might be one of the most important things from the text this morning. And that is that the bitterness of the water is not what took away Israel's joy. What took away their joy was their distrust in their God. It's a lie to believe that circumstances around us have the power to steal away our joy in Christ. They make it harder, for sure, right? They, they tempt our joy. They, they, they put our joy to the test. They put our faith to God in test. But, but bitter water and broken paper clips and your parents' rules or your boss or your medical diagnosis, they do not have the power to steal away your joy in Christ. John Calvin says of our grumbling and of this text in particular, he says, God might have given Israel sweet water to drink at first, but he wished by the bitter to make prominent the bitterness which lurked in their own hearts. Bitterness does not come in the outward circumstances, but in the inward response. We are called not to complain, but to believe in the goodness of God, even when he leads us to the bitter waters. We have a choice, church, when we are brought before bitter waters, to either grumble or to believe in God. And that choice determines our joy, which is why James says count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So so rush hour traffic or your spouse's sin or your delayed hopes and dreams do not have the power to steal away your joy. We, We give them that power when we allow ourselves to lose sight of God, that he is good, that he promises to be with us and to help us, and that there's something that he wants to show us in the trials that we walk through. Kevin DeYoung says we grumble And I'll add, and lose our joy when neither God's past provision nor God's future promises have any bearing on our present pain. And that's what's happening here to Israel. They lose sight of what God has done and they're not thinking. like They're not thinking about how God could have purposes for them in this moment, right? That he can and that he will help them. And so they start to grumble and they lose all of their joy, right? It it probably didn't happen all at once, right? As with grumbling, probably a few of the Israelites started to grumble, and others heard it, and they said, yep, that makes sense, and they start grumbling, and soon they've lost all of their joy, right? And their, their joy is lost as the grumbling spreads around, and soon the whole nation is complaining against God and before the Lord that they had once been worshiping. And church, that can happen to us, that can happen to you, can happen in your families that could happen in our church where we grumble and we lose our joy and we stop worshiping the lord which leads to our third observation about grumbling is that grumbling disrupts our relationship with god you'll notice that when israel complains about their circumstances they don't bring their complaints before the lord right instead they complain to moses right And and they're not necessarily looking to either of them to solve their problems. They're just grumbling, right? Church, let's not forget that that God actually does invite us to bring our burdens before him. I I spoke about this a few weeks ago, so I won't won't go into great detail here. Um, But consider the Psalms or so many other places in the Bible where God invites us to express our sorrows and our anxieties to him. God does not expect us to ignore the reality that life is hard. He calls not call us to ignore that reality and just put a smile on our face and, and walk through life as everything is fine, because life is not all fine. And God knows that, and he knows that we know that, and he does not expect us to operate as if that is not true. Romans 8. Speaks of how ever since the fall, all of creation has been groaning together under the weight of life's burdens. This life is not what it should be, church. And it's not what it one day will be. But there's a difference between groaning and grumbling. There's a difference between bringing our burdens before God and complaining about God. There's a difference between being honest with God about the trials and your bad days and saying, God, you cannot be trusted with this day. That's what grumbling says to God. Grumbling distances us from him when he would instead have us to draw near to him and to find relief and to bring our burdens before him and to find help. 1 Peter 5 says, humble yourselves, Which is the opposite of grumbling. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. So that at the proper time he might exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him. Bring your burdens before the Lord. Bring your complaints before the Lord. Bring your anxieties before the Lord. Because he cares for you. And church he does care for us. Even in the midst of our grumbling He cares for us, and he is gracious to us. This leads us to our second point this morning, that is remembering the grace of God. In verse 25, Moses does what the people of Israel did not do, and he brings the needs of the people before the Lord, right? In church, God is so gracious. In spite of their grumbling, he works immediately for their good. Verse 25 says, And Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. God is so gracious. He moved to save them. Right? Now, it might seem like a, a strange way for God to move towards saving them and providing for them. He, he has Moses throw a log into the sea. But, but think for a moment about what's happening here. and I think that God is drawing Israel's attention back to their time in Egypt. that first plague that God sent, remember where, where, where God turned the Nile River into blood and made it undrinkable. Same situation here. In Egypt, God told Moses to strike the Nile with a staff and that he would make the water drinkable again. So here God shows Moses this log from a tree and by it he gives the grumbling people of Israel drinking water. I think God is saying that the same God who is with you in Egypt is here with you now i think as well there's there's some foreshadowing here of the day when christ would take his own tree the wood of the cross and be submerged by the bitterness into god's wrath in order to give us sweetness of fellowship with him and i think there are there are many things that this moment is pointing towards but But ultimately, God is saying, I can provide for you, Israel. I have in the past, and I am right now, and I will in the future. Trust in me. But God is not just interested here in giving his people something to drink. He is most interested in helping Israel to see what their response to God's grace should be. Verses 25 through 26 say, There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. See, God makes it known to Israel that he will provide for them. He's done so in the past, he's going to do so in the future, but they must follow him, right? And we see here God is, is using this opportunity in the desert to test Israel's allegiances to him. And, and let's not misunderstand God here. This test is not laying out the requirements for salvation, right? God has already delivered Israel from Egypt. They're on the other side of the Red Sea already, Right? So this test is not about salvation, it's about sanctification, right? He's saying, yes, you have followed me out of Egypt and you have rejoiced in my salvation at the Red Sea. You trust in me when I triumph over your enemies, but will you continue to follow me when that triumph turns into testing? When the trials come when the water turns bitter. God says, you can trust in me in those moments and have joy and rest, or we can do things the hard way, right? And you can forget about my goodness, and you can go on grumbling, and like Israel or like Egypt, you can experience my discipline and, and unnecessary hardships until I humble you and bring you back to myself. See, Israel has a lot left to learn, right? There's There's something instructive for us in the fact that the book of Exodus does not end at the first half of chapter 15, where all of Israel is rejoicing at the great salvation that we received from God, right? Exodus continues for 25 more chapters, and there's a a lesson for us in that. If you're reading through the book of Exodus and you come to chapter 15, you might think this is a great place to just end the story, right? Right? After all these years of captivity, Israel is finally delivered by the Red Sea. And the final chapter is their climactic moment of worship before their saving God, right? And they live happily ever after, roll the credits, right? But that's not how the story ends, right? The story continues. And the story continues because we come to know the grace of God not only through His salvation but also as we learn to follow him in the wilderness. For those of us in this room who have been saved for many years, we know this is true, right? We know that our story is not yet finished. God is a gracious God who has saved us, but he is not done with us, right? He wants to teach us. He wants to change us. He wants to help us to see more of his glory and to grow in joy in him. And and this, this happens as we learn to follow him and trust him even in the difficult moments of life. And often we learn this particularly in the difficult moments of life. And if we are willing to do this, we come to find that he is able to provide for all of our needs. As we come to the very end of this chapter, this is exactly what we see God doing for his people. Verse 27 says, Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. And there they encamped by the water. As is often the case in life, we experience a season of rest and blessing. And then God brings us to bitter things, where our resolve to follow Christ is tested, right? And those times, while they are hard, they help to humble us. They reveal our quickness to grumble and complain, but they also teach us of God's persistent grace and mercy. In this final verse, we see that abundant grace of God. After the season of testing and teaching for Israel, God brings them to Elim, where they find 12 springs of water and 20 palm trees, and and those are not arbitrary numbers. There are 12 tribes of Israel. So a stream for each of the tribes. There, there were twenty palm trees, one for each of the, or there were seventy palm trees, each for the seventy leaders that God had appointed over Israel. These are these these numbers are symbolic for God's absolute ability to care for His people. He's saying, "I know you, Israel. I know your needs. I know the difficulties that you are walking through. I know how to take care of you. I'm able to meet." Your needs abundantly, by number, specifically. You can trust in me. And, church, God does the same for us. Sometimes He does lead us beside the bitter waters of Mara, right? And all the hardships that we have endured, right? He leads us to seasons of adversity that we might be humbled. That might we be quick to see how quick we grumble and forget about all that God has done. But even as we do that, God does not forget us. He knows our struggles. And he meets us in those struggles. And and here is the, the true demonstration of God's grace, church. Not only does God know our struggles, but he joins us in those struggles. And don't we see that grace so clearly in Christ? Jesus himself has entered the wilderness. Jesus himself suffered outside of the camp. He endured all the hardships that we have endured. And he did so for us, grumbling, forgetful, unthankful people. He gave his life for us. And he is able to make the bitter waters sweet. But his grace goes so far beyond that church in that he himself entered into the bitter for us. He drank the bitter cup of God's wrath that we deserved. He does not leave us in the wilderness alone. He joins us in it. And then he redeems us out of it. That is grace, church. Hebrews 4 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. Let us draw near to Christ this week, church. And find mercy and grace in the time of need. And and even if the streams of bitterness linger in our lives this week, the sweetness of Christ remains. He doesn't just lead you to fresh waters. He is the refreshing water, church. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So today, look to Christ Look to what he has done for you. Let your grumbling turn to praise. As we say with the psalmist, because your steadfast love is better than life. It is better than life. It is better than anything else this world has to offer. Because of that, our lips will praise you. He can turn your bitter streams to sweet. But even when he leads you to better waters, he himself satisfies you. Christ is the true and greater Elim. He is the the fountain of blessing in the wilderness. He knows your needs. He knows your burdens. He bears your burdens with you. He leads you beside both still and bitter waters. And he will, in the end, be gracious to make every water sweet. Remember his grace this week, church. And let your grumbling be turned to praise. Let's pray.